This is a book about the dawn of human civilization. It goes back to a historical period called the Enneolithic, the Chalcolithic era. It reflects the story of the oldest civilization known in Europe, called by the broadest term Ancient Europe. This book represents a sensational discovery about the oldest known inhabitants of Ancient Europe, whose ethnic name has come to us through the classical ancient writers such as Homer, Herodotus, Pythagoras, Plutarch, and many others. It tells us the story of the rediscovery of ancient Thrace and the people who were called from times immemorial simply the Thracians. These people were known to Herodotus as the most numerous ethnic group second only to the Hindus and to Homer who wrote his Iliad as people who reminded him of the gods. I will leave most of the story for others to tell, namely the archaeologists and the historians of the ancient past. My part to tell is only the smallest, yet it must be the most glorious, for it is about one aspect of the lives of these ancient people, the Thracians, that makes them a most unique ethnic group among their neighbors, when all things are taken into consideration. Our modern understanding of history shifts and changes faster than ever these days with the advent of the internet communications era. The reason is apparent unprecedented free and unhampered access to multiple global information streams, allowing the broadest ever data harvesting and source analysis. Such unique new possibilities are especially relevant to the researching of the most ancient history of the world, since access to the most ancient and unique document sources of the past had also been the hardest to get in previous years, for multiple reasons of various nature. This book redefines what most archaeologists and historians classify today as the prehistoric era, named so to denote a period of time lacking yet a system of writing and thus signifying that a historical record had not yet been possible. And since this book identifies and decodes writing on artifacts from this time period, making it now historic due to the proven existing written historical record, it shifts the known boundaries of the prehistoric era to at least a couple of millennia earlier in time. Furthermore, from the prehistoric texts decoded in this book, it becomes quite clear that the people who inscribed them were neither prehistoric nor primitive, contrary to the many so-called scientific models of the ancient past, but demonstrated highly sophisticated levels of thought expression anticipated by modern science for a much later period of modernity. Exactly because of the above, this book may appear quite threatening and paradigm-shifting for some present scientific, historical, archaeological, and anthropological dogmas. Thus, it may trigger negative reactions and oppositions by those readers who remain unprepared for significant set of mind changes, and by those former authoritative figures in science who would rather deny this unique discovery than lose their personal scientific ground and territory. This must not come as a surprise as it is inevitable that the conclusions resulting from a discovery of this nature will actually turn quite a few basic assumptions in modern science upside down, i.e. unless we understand that things have long been head down and now, being turned around once more, they will actually assume their due and rightful position. We should not forget, therefore, that such turbulent changes have always occurred with the major, more or less revolutionary inventions and discoveries of our time and this should not only be expected but also welcomed by the greater part of free-thinking and intelligent people. This is definitely not just another attempt at decoding the plates from Gradishnitsa, or Gradishnitsa, the 5th millennium BCE, and Caranovo, the 4th millennium BCE, before Common Era. 
This book makes all the difference compared to all previous decades of works, presenting various already discarded suggestions, interpretations, and presumptions, and on and on and on, all failed attempts at decoding any of the engraved signs upon the plates, or even making informed guesses about their meaning. For the first time ever, in the scientific discourse laid out in this book, you will find the complete and final scientific decoding of each and every one of the pictographic signs upon both tablets, and the consequent results are, the least to say, unprecedented and sensational. What is especially unique about the reading of the prehistoric texts from these particular plates is the elegant research methodology used by the author to display, literally before the eyes of his audience, all the linguistic detail and artistry leading to the undisprovable and direct conclusions from the accurate final analysis of the hieroglyphic pictograms and their full meanings rendered. Some of the deciphered words in the text mentioning the name of Thrace and the territory of Thrace since around 7,000 years ago, such as on the plate of Gradishnitsa, as well as the evidence for well-defined Thracian Orphic themes since around 6,000 years ago on the plate from Caranovo, are bound to turn at least a few scientific heads. This is so exactly because until now, no one had dared to conceive that the Thracians could have been Autochthonous, or originally native, population in those parts of the Balkans. Since such ancient times, especially because all classical Greek chronicles related the name of their ethnicity to the period of the Bronze Age, which was about a couple of millennia later, What's most astounding yet is the fact that the Thracian pictographic script, now decoded, was found on artifacts, the two plates named above, which are of such antiquity that it is now considered conclusively to be the first and oldest script ever known to mankind, predating the written artifacts from Sumer and Egypt by some extra two millennia, or two thousand years. On top of that, it now becomes evident that it was first developed and used by the Thracians, who have been labeled by historians for far too long as a people of no letters. It is worth mentioning the fact that these people of no letters evidently made use of this most ancient pre-hieroglyphic script for at least a millennium, or more, since the hieroglyphs identified on the plate from Gretishnitsa and the ones identified on the plate from Caranova have been found to be of the same type of pictographic writing. Therefore, it is very likely that a number of other findings from the same period which have so far been defined as decorative artifacts, may also turn out to be literary documents, written in the same Thracian script. It will become clear from the discourse in the book that this particular script represents a special type of pre-hieroglyphic identical in character and similar in style to its later counterpart, and possibly direct descendant, which we all know as Egyptian hieroglyphic writing. Famous for style and beauty from its pyramid text specimens, of a legendary epoch, notably over two millennia newer than that of the Thracian tablets. Some experts in the field may actually be so unprepared for a surprise of this magnitude that they may wish the plates were a fake, specially fabricated by an interested party. Luckily, however, the plates from Gradishnitsa and Caranovo are not a new discovery, but have been around for several decades and have been thoroughly tested by experts, and their genuineness as well as accurate dating have been certified. There have been hints and doubts about the possibility of identifying early pre-writing patterns upon them on numerous previous occasions. However, none such have been agreeably identified or decoded until this present final success. 
Analysis by authoritative sources have been done in the past, searching for similarities between the signs on the plates and other already known ancient scripts like Linear A, while the findings of others categorically rejected any notion that the signs represented a writing system at all, since they could not identify patterns of repetitiveness in the engravings, which could be the hallmark of any known linear writing system. Notwithstanding their differences of opinion about the nature of the artifacts themselves, however, most writers have agreed that if a type of writing was to be indeed identified on the above named plates, this could bring about a dramatic shift in our modern understanding of the ancient world. Well, mine is the privilege to announce that in the course of my present research, the ancient Thracian script has now been finally decoded and the results are unprecedented and sensational. When no observer exists, who could conduct an observation of the world? This simply means that the observers and their definitions play primary roles for the state of being of the world such as we know it, and the potential for change of the same world is locked in the ability for transformation of these observers and definitions. This is a theorem of irrevocable validity and extraordinary existential proportions for each and every one of us simply because we are the observers in the individually visible world, or rather worlds, of our own lives, whatever the depth or multidimensionality of that state of being of ours may be. Furthermore, the observation definitions, so vital for the resulting state of being of our world, are nothing else but exactly our definitions of this entity of ours. Whatever the depth, width and height, or other levels of dimensionality this entity of ours may encompass, such thoughts have always been leading for me and have guided my interest and in research in the fields of the human psyche, psychological linguistics, language pictography, and cryptography. In the course of my research of the above in relation to the archetypal characteristics of the collective unconscious, I became deeply involved in the study of several ancient languages and their writing systems, which brought me to the point of realization that pictographic thinking, expression, and writing are integral parts of the human psyche. With that in mind, I have continued for many years now my study of Egyptian hieroglyphic writing, among others, like the ancient Chinese and Native American early prototypes, trying to find a common link that would be the first and most archaic way of human expression. For the longest period of my life, I had believed that I had found the ultimate answers to my research hypothesis in the script of the early dynastic period in ancient Egypt, when suddenly I stumbled upon genuine Orphic an early Christian text which revealed to me a striking new picture of the beginnings of the human civilization. Through them I learned the emotionally moving and exciting revelation that my native land and my native people of Bulgaria were most likely the very cradle of the beginnings of human history through our most ancient ancestors on the Balkans, the Thracians. With this my lifetime work project entered its best and highest phase of research yet. Finally, after everything said and confessed to this point, it's about time to reassure my readers in the practical value of all the conclusions and research methods in this book. Many of them, they will be able to apply for themselves in their own professional and or personal private lives. Needless to say, I am acutely aware that with this humble work of mine, I am neither producing the final word on the issue of the ancient Thracian script, nor bringing a closure to the thesis of my life's research on the origins of human archetypal thinking and expression. At this particular stage of my work, 
my goal will be considered adequately fulfilled. If I have succeeded just opening the next door to the horizons of new insights and de the developing picture of our true origins and meaning. To this, let everyone feel welcome to add more, and especially all honest scientists and colleagues of mine, who are in the privileged position of being able to employ the powerful methodology of transcendent science to the good of all human beings, and our entire anthropomorphic cosmos. I dedicate my work to divine wisdom, to the altar of whom I have offered my creative energies and labors, hoping they will be remembered as a noble spark in the timeless efforts of all human beings, in their quest for the whole, complete, and ultimate truth, and a building block in the tower of knowledge of that truth, which breathes life in all living forms through the ages of the ages. Now, does all that that's said so far have anything to do with Thrace and the decoding of the Thracian script at all? Why, yes it does. It has everything to do with it. And the following explains just why it does. The light of the body is the eye. If, therefore, your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Matthew 6, 22 and 23. And again, for as the eye of one is able to perceive, so is that person altogether. Ecclesiastes. So just how do we perceive our most ancient ancestors? Are we prone to seeing them as primitives, slaves of nature, illiterate Neanderthals? In this regard, we have been so brainwashed by years and years of scientific Darwinist propaganda that we have almost forgotten that the theory of evolution was only recently developed hypothesis, and for thousands of years prior to that, the most enlightened minds of our civilization were absolutely confident that mankind descended from God and was divine in nature. Never had it passed through their minds to humiliate and devaluate humanity so much as to propose that we were the descendants of apes. The Thracian King Tzer in Egypt Here's just one of a number of secret Orphic texts, which relates to the supremacy of the Thracian culture, religion, and science in the then-world. Because from the time of that descendant of the dynasty of the first Tiras, who was named after his father, namely King Tizer, or Tzer, for that's how his name was read in the Thracian speech, a new dynasty was established in Egypt when the Thracian ships dropped anchor and debarked at the Nile Delta, where the first capital of Egypt at Buto was founded. Thus Thrace brought about the beginnings of the first dynasty of Egypt and inseminated and impregnated the land of Egypt with the ancient speech and writing. For the script of Thrace was the ancient speech with whose imaginary signs which are from Eden and which were later received and stylized by all of the Egyptians. The secret chapters of the second epistle of Melchizedek 1, 10, and 11. The Book of the Thracian Epistles. The City Foundation. Sophia. 2005. Another similar account of the ancient Thracians is recorded by the Roman historian of Jewish descent, Josephus Flavius, who wrote, Now Tiras, the son of Japhet, called the people over whom he ruled Tiresians, or Thracians, but the Greeks later changed the name, calling them Thracians, Antiquity of the Jews, Book 1, Chapter 6, 1, 125, The Works of Josephus, translated by William Whiston, A.M., Hendrickson Publishers, 1987. Following historical records like the above, I decided to check them out for veracity and prove them either right or wrong. They sounded both curious and intriguing, 
and at the same time arousing a great deal of skepticism in regards to the facts of their record. So I had a lot of mixed feelings about spending valuable time on finding out the facts. Nevertheless, soon the ambition of the obstinate researcher in me won over the hesitation about the validity of the whole issue, and a final decision to proceed with the project was reached. The idea that fascinated me the most was, what if, what just if the above obscure pieces of record about the Thracians proved to be a sound historical fact? This could change the whole picture of what we think we know about the earliest inhabitants of Europe. The Thracians. It was definitely worthwhile checking it out. After all, these same ancient Thracians were most likely the common ancient forefathers for the largest part of the whole continent of Europe. So the question I placed at the start of my research was the following. Was there anything in common between any ancient text ever found on artifacts in Egypt and any artifacts ever found in the land of ancient Thrace, most of which is in modern Bulgaria? My problem was knowing where to begin or what to begin with, for that matter. One major thought kept pressing in, as the possible clue. Well, let's begin with the Thracian king Zare. To do that, I had to search for any registered events of an expedition, according to my source quoted above, of a king of such a name in the early texts of ancient Egypt. In this discourse, I will save my audience the time and effort I had to spend in digging out material and information in libraries and through my scientific friends and correspondents around the world, as well as the inner controversies and arguments pro and against waging a little big war inside my own mind and soul in the quest for finding the truth. Here's the end result from a long search on the final answer to the puzzle. Yes, there is a king by the name Zare, but its anglicized version is spelled out Jer or Dejer, and so or so the Egyptologists say at least. That's it, Dejer, first dynasty, the old kingdom of ancient Egypt. Is there anything ever written about him in the Nile Delta and the capital of Bhutto on any artifact ever found in Egypt? Yes, indeed. An ivory plate at the British Museum, dated by scientists to around 3000 before Common Era, with the following scholarly description. A plate from Abydos, referring to Dejer's journey made to the Delta city of Bhutto, one of Egypt's early capitals. This plate of Jer is not only an important piece of evidence supporting our hypothesis, prompted by the Orphic text analyzed above, but it turns out to be such a good specimen of very, a very early ancient Egyptian writing that it would be an invaluable tool for comparison with any similarly ancient and possibly equally primitive or rather primordial type of writing. That could be its progenitor in Thrace or anywhere else in the world for this matter. If our Orphic lead proves itself to be true, but let's look at the Jair plate itself now. Our attention inadvertently focuses on the very primitive or rather archaic way in which the pictographic signs have been engraved. Then we try to pinpoint and identify the hieroglyphic of the name of Dejer. We need this hieroglyph for a very special purpose. Remember what was written about his ancestral predecessor bearing the same name as him by the Roman historian Josephus. Now Tiras, i.e. Tezer, the son of Japhet, called the people over whom he ruled Tiresians, but the Greeks later changed the name, calling them Thracians. Antiquity of the Jews, Book 1, Chapter 6, 1. The works of Josephus, translated by William Whiston, A.M. Hendrickson, Publishers, 1987. Now, if we have correctly pinpointed the source and found out the ancient hieroglyph of the name of Tezer, 
Now, judging from the above quote from Josephus, it could mean only one very important thing for our whole research. We have found the ancient hieroglyph, meaning not only Tezer, but also Thracian and Thrace, for according to Josephus, they are all but derivatives of that king's name. For a better analysis, in addition to the picture of the Dejer plate above, we can also review the schematic presentation of the Dejer plate, as published in Peter Clayton's book, Chronicle of the Pharaohs, page 22, courtesy Thames and Hudson, 1994. This is a quite clear schematic drawing of the plate, which allows you to discern a, a few very important details. There are four visible rows of pictograms, hieroglyphs on this schematic presentation of the plate kept at the British Museum, among which you can immediately identify the picture of a ship, the pictogram of the city of Bhutto, and the hieroglyph of the name of King Dejer, and a Sarek. Now, the Sarek is a decorative element surrounding all royal names, and is a form of etiquette meaning his majesty or his royalty. Come on, let's pinpoint this particular pictographic sign. Let me help you some. Look in the upper left corner of the plate. Here it is, the invaluable Dejer sign in the Sarek. And what you see is up in the top left here with this bird sitting atop the box with three strokes, three bars with a stroke through it. And then on the bottom, a set of four bars. And as we already know from all said in this book so far, this is also the hieroglyph for Thrace and Thracian. It is not quite clear why this particular hieroglyph is found in one spot of the same text, drawn this way, and it appears as four T's, and in another way, that way, where it's four T's with the bar across midway. Not even mentioning the fact that it is also found in other texts from ancient Egypt, where it has been drawn in a variety of other versions, like the following few. Four bars, four bars with it, a dash in the center, four bars with a dash in the center, italicized with a bit of an edge on the end of it, four bars with a dash through the center and turned on a 45 degree angle, three bars that end up looking like pylons or skinny pyramids, three bars that are pylons or pyramids with a bar across the top, or five bars with a bar on top. One explanation may be that in ancient Egyptian writing, these varieties add specific attributes to the main ideogrammic or ideogrammic or phonetic value of the pictogram. For Tezer, Tiras, or Thrace, Thracian, which added attributes in the above given cases have the following respective meanings. The four pillars of the world, the backbone of the world, the spinal column, the divine words, scepters, the land of divine words, and megaliths or megalithic temples. Wow, is that ever amazing. It's the four pillars. As a result of our findings about the Dejer plate kept at the British Museum, now we have acquired a pretty good idea of what to look for among similar artifacts found in Thrace, modern-day Bulgaria. Let us begin our search with the simplest and most logical thing to look for, the pictogram meaning Thrace itself. Since we have already identified its presence in ancient Egypt, isn't it just logical that it should be an even more common finding in the land of Thrace itself? Yes, indeed, and so in fact it is, as there are quite a few examples of its presence in present-day Bulgaria. 
For the purposes of our specific research in this book, we will focus our attention on just two such findings, proving the use so far of at least two of the above-listed versions of the pictograms of Thrace, which relate to the temple and liturgical traditions of ancient Thrace at the dynastic and start level. 1. The hieroglyph, meaning Thrace, with strong temple and megalithic connotations, is the central emblematic design widely present at the Royal Thracian Funerary Complex at Shvesh-Ter in Bulgaria. At this magnificent architectural structure, the above pictogram of Thrace can be seen stylized as the Thracian triglyph, royal emblem, repetitively integrated in the ornamental sculptural frieze above the cherubimic, caryatid female guardians of the monarch. Thus reflecting the state importance of this particular temple funerary complex as a national holy shrine of Thrace. In our second example, the Thracian hieroglyph, in its version signifying that Thrace is the land of divine words, has been often identified as part of the rich ornamentation upon silver and gold sacred vessels from the famous Thracian treasures found at many archaeological sites in Bulgaria. A more detailed analysis of the role of the sacred vessels of Thrace in the ancient liturgical practices and invocations is presented later in this summary and in chapter 10 of this book. The same hieroglyph was probably also the precursor of the very peculiar shape in Thracian I, letter M, in the Cyrillic phonetic alphabet, developed much later, of course, which is still in use in Bulgaria and other Slavic countries. And the letter, it, it appears as an M or as three T's connected together. And very uh, sweeping and formed in style. Now, since we have acquired a pretty good idea of what to look for, let us continue our search for other artifacts found in Thrace, modern-day Bulgaria, like, let's say, plates or tablets that may contain similar findings to those of the already analyzed Dejer plate kept at the British Museum. Have there ever been found any such so-called plates or tablets anywhere in the land of Thrace? Yes, indeed, quite a few. However, archaeologists have defined the finds as clay decorative appliques, pintadera seals, used for imprinting decorative designs upon pottery. Pictographic interpretation may be possible from the Thracian Atlantis Book 1, page 129. Authors Peter Detev and Jordan Detev, Bulgarian Multimedia Society of 2002. Now let us remember that we already learned from the principles of transcendent science about the exclusive role of the observer in any research platform. The problem, which any observer faces is the proven by practice fact that each reality can be perceived only based on the perception and idea models. For as the eye of one is able to perceive, so is that person altogether. In other words, if a researcher starts out on the look for decorative pintaderas, he will most likely see in most tablets nothing else but more or less decorative pintaderas. This is why the starting hypothesis of the researcher is number one determinant for his correct scientific perception and for the final results and conclusions of his work. Now let's pick a decorative pintadera or two from the Thracian Eneolithic era and start looking for something more than decorative elements and see if there are any similarities perchance between the decorations on them and the pictographic signs from the Dejer tablet at the British Museum. A good pick for the purpose turned out to be two of the more famous finds of the pintadera type. First because their numerous pictures had already hit the press for a few decades now and secondly because they had been found by archaeologists hundreds of miles apart one in the Ratsa district of Bulgaria, and the other in the Nova Zagora district of Bulgaria. 
and they had already been dated by experts for a time origin of about a thousand years apart from the 5th and 4th millennium BCE, respectively. The above-mentioned peculiarities made a lot of sense for our pick, exactly because their facts would help us eliminate any possibility for so-called exclusiveness of the object of our research. That term would apply if all the artifacts found were representative of one spot or one place only in a moment of time in history, which would automatically negate the validity of our research. In other words, the tablet from Gratisnitsa and the tablet from Karanovo presented an almost ideal opportunity for analysis of two quite separate time and space artifacts, which both contained engraved designs upon them, which looked from the beginning promising in terms of our hypothesis that they may contain some pictographic science. In addition to that, however, they both were great candidates for our research, in terms of validity of whatever results came out in the end, as the two tablets could be viewed as representative of the larger area and time framework of a land perimeter halfway across Bulgaria, and at a time perimeter of about one whole millennium, or 1,000 years, from 5,000 BCE to 4,000 BCE. Now that we have already made our choice about the material objects of our research, let's begin examining them from different angles, turning them all possible directions, trying to identify any possible patterns of writing. No matter how hard we try, soon we have concluded the obvious, and you can surely come to the same conclusion, that there are no letter signs belonging to any known linear alphabet on either tablet. No Greek, no Phoenician, no Arabic, no Hebrew, etc. No alphabetic linear letter. The same cannot be said about possible pictographic signs, however, because from the very start, a few very primitive or rather archaic primordial drawings of non-stylized figures of men immediately capture the eye and remind us of the quick hand or shorthand writing signs the ancient Egyptian scribes often used instead of drawing the full graphics of the corresponding hieroglyphic pictograms. Some examples of such simplified hieroglyphs are presented here for your review. And you see them here. This stylized man instead of the man crouching. And this stylized version of the man instead of a warrior. It's a man holding a shield instead of the full warrior. And then this stick man holding his bag instead of this hobo over here. So far so good, however, this is not enough to reach any, to reach any conclusions yet unless we are able to identify a lot more than just a few drawn, isolated figures on our tablets, all our efforts so far will have been prematurely ended with no significant results. It is precisely so, because unless there is some sort of syntax and or meaningful context connection between all the different primitive signs already picked up by our vision, there can be no pictographic text but just a few decorative drawings which would have confirmed that we are dealing simply with decorative pintaderas. Luckily, my efforts paid off this time. The multiple pictographic signs that became gradually discernible in front of my very eyes upon each of the plates started literally shaping into something so full of richness of content and contextual integrity that it soon revealed a congruent ancient text of such power that it subdued my whole being to wonder and speechless awe, lasting for days, in view of the eternal meaning of this profound message. I am absolutely convinced that reading the next few pages you will also be captivated by the same unspeakable sensation of being touched by the eternal spirit of divine wisdom that I felt touched by at my very first encounter with the words of the timeless messages left for us by our great ancestors some four and five millennia ago on humble pieces of clay which nevertheless survived for us to read today. Behold, the first decoded tablet from ancient Thrace is right in front of your eyes now.
devotive tablet from the village of Gradishnitsa, the Enneolithic Chalcolithic era, circa 5000 BCE. The tablet from Gradishnitsa contains four rows of pictographic signs, which are quite clearly visible upon the tablet's pictograph. They are presented in a computer-enhanced version and in a schematic drawing, respectively in exhibits B and C. If there have been any other additional signs on the artifact that are presently not visible or discernible, these have not been taken into consideration for the purposes of our present reading of the text. The above identified pictographic signs look exactly like the hieroglyphic inscription presented as Exhibit D when they are transcribed using the stylized later version of the pictographic script. Known to us from the pyramid texts of ancient Egypt, beautifully rendered here in its computerized calligraphic print. Upon comparison, it becomes evident that the text displayed on Exhibit B, Exhibit C, and Exhibit D is absolutely one and the same identical text, and that the two calligraphic styles, respectively the early Thracian and the late Egyptian, represent one and the same identical pictographic script, which has come to us down the ages in its condition and appearance as seen on Exhibit A. The evident conclusions are as follows. The script used in the engravings upon the tablet of Gratisnitsa found in the land of ancient Thrace, and the scripts used in similar tablets and in the pyramid text found in ancient Egypt, represent one and the same identical hieroglyphic script. The tablet from Gratisnitsa found in the land of ancient Thrace predates similar artifacts found in Egypt by at least two millennia. Apparently this particular type of hieroglyphic script had originated and was first used in ancient Thrace and it was later transferred and introduced in ancient Egypt. The early Thracian version of this hieroglyphic script was evidently used quite sparingly, predominantly as the sacred language of the initiated elite. It doesn't appear from the findings so far that it ever reached the levels of widespread utilization which it found thousands of years later in its late Egyptian version. And here you see the tablets. The hieroglyphic text upon the tablet from Gratisnitsa can be read in the right to left direction, and his translation has the following or similar meaning verse by verse. The three one God, Trinity or Gods, encompasses, dwells in Thrace. O God, who are dwelling in the territory of Thrace. I witness to the truth, I give offerings to the great Son of God. Or I promise to give offerings to the great Son of God. I glorify the great God, and I will praise you, O great God. The temple of God is a great fortress and a secret defended place. O God, who are in your temple, be my fortress and defend me. Deliver me from the enemy. And if we're to put the above text into our everyday lingo of our modern times, it, may sound, it might sound something like this. O three one God, of the land of Thrace, I vow in truth to bring you all due offerings, O great Son of God, and only you shall I praise and exalt, O my God, for you are great. You who are now in your temple, I pray, hear me, keep me safe, and deliver me from all evil. 
From a technical linguistic point of view, it is worth noting here that the above text does not give us adequate clues as to the phonetic pronunciation of the Thracian words in it, or any information about exact phonetics or grammatical natures. But from the signs used on the tablet, only the hieroglyphic symbol meaning to or unto, as in give to or give unto, has a phonetic value of the linear alphabetic letter N and is read N or N in the ancient Egyptian language. All the rest of the hieroglyphic signs engraved on the tablet are only ideograms in nature and therefore their pronunciation could be identical to, similar to, or entirely dissimilar to that of ancient Egyptian speech. This very nature of the ancient pictographic script evidently placed in it, it in the position of being the ideal universal international language among the initiated elites, simply because even people who had very different and unintelligible to each other spoken languages could still use this pictographic script as perfectly practical and intelligible means of communication between themselves, very much the same way as we nowadays use the international road signs for the purposes of regulating road traffic and global transportation or I'd say, planar transportation. The sacred tablet from the village of Karanovo, the Nova Zagora district, circa 4000 BCE. This tablet contains two rows of pictographic signs separated by a horizontal line, each one of which is quite clearly visible upon the tablet's photograph. The same are presented in computer-enhanced versions and in schematic drawings, each respectively in Exhibits B and Exhibit C. Please note that the signs engraved under the horizontal line are inverted, i.e. head down, and the tablet needs to be turned 180 degrees around to full diametrical opposition so that the reading of the second row of text can be accomplished. After the above rotation, the second row of the engraved pictograms is presented below and its corrected upright position for easier reading. Now all of the above identified pictographic signs look exactly like the hieroglyphic inscriptions presented in the exhibits when they are transcribed using the stylized later version of the pictographic script known to us from the pyramid text of ancient Egypt and beautifully rendered here in its computerized calligraphic print. Upon comparison it becomes evident that each of the rows of text displayed on exhibits B, C, and D is absolutely one and the same identical text, and that the two calligraphic styles, respectively the Thracian and the late Egyptian, represent one and the same identical pictographic script, which has come to us down the ages in its condition and appearance as seen on Exhibits A. The evident conclusions, just like in the previous case, are as follows. The script used in the engravings upon the tablet of Caranova found in the land of ancient Thrace are the same scripts used in similar tablets found in ancient Egypt and are identical hieroglyphic script. The tablet from Caranovo found in the land of ancient Thrace predates similar artifacts found in Egypt by at least one millennium. Apparently this particular type of hieroglyphic script had originated and was used first in ancient Thrace and was later transferred and introduced in ancient Egypt. The early Thracian version of this hieroglyphic script was evidently used quite sparingly predominantly as the sacred language of the initiated elite. It doesn't appear from the findings so far that it ever reached the levels of widespread utilization which it found thousands of years later in its late Egyptian version. The hieroglyphic text upon the tablet from Caranovo can be read either in the right to left 
or in the left to right because of the symmetrical position of the pictograms around a central axis. Its translation, following the well-established rules for translating Egyptian hieroglyphic writing, has the following or similar meaning, verse by verse. The earthly human realm is separated by the grave and the guardian of the resurrection between the living and the dead from the fiery divine realm. Through the mystery of death and resurrection, the earthly human becomes a divine being. Falsehood, a lie, and injustice reigns in the lower earthly realm, while truth and justice reigns supreme in the upper divine realm. The one who has been initiated has exchanged his crown of the lower realm for the high crown of the upper realm and has passed from falsehood into truth, ruling with the high priestly scepter of truth and justice now firmly in his hand. If we were to put the above text into the everyday lingo of our modern time, it would sound something like this. Whosoever has been initiated in the mystery of death and resurrection, he has been born anew, and his new nature is divine. He has left all falsehood and has come to know the truth. He now reigns in justice and truth, with the scepter and crown of the upper realm being the ruler of both the upper and lower worlds. Just as before, from a technical linguistic point of view, it is worth noting that the text does not give us adequate clues to the phonetic pronunciation of the Thracian words or any information about phonetics, but that the signs used can be used to decipher the meaning. The text of the tablet from Karanova inevitably brings to memory the documented text from a couple of other tablets written in Linear Greek over 3,000 years later. They are known as the Orphic Ivory Tablets from Olvia, tablet number 1 and 2 out of 5, discovered in 1951 and carbon dated around 500 BCE. A detailed description of the Olvia Tablets is found in the book The Thracian Dionysios, Dionysus, Invocation and Faith, New Bulgarian University, Sophia, 2002, by Professor Alexander Foll, who wrote the following. The first one of the five tablets is engraved with the text formula Life, Death, Life, Truth and Iopoikoi is visible under that formula. Interpreted from its ethnic Orphic language, it brings forth the revelation that life is death and death is life in the beyond, where true knowledge, truth is to be found, i.e. death reveals and opens the way to true knowledge. All hesitation is gone upon examination of the second tablet. One of its sides reads, Peace, War, Truth, Falsehood, and below that row, Ion. The revelation is now complete, stating that true knowledge, found beyond death, is also peace, in opposition to war and falsehood, which are contrary to the Orphic teaching. The pictographic vocabulary of the words used in the text from the Thracian tablet and some related ideograms.
Okay, so... I hope, I think you guys will find this interesting. What we're doing today is the continuation of some of the other things that we've been looking at. So this is a continuation of the North Pole and Mercator's maps and the Arctic exploration stuff that we've looked at previously. So this will just be more on that, a continuation on that. What I've done is having gone back to look for some of the documents uh, for an upcoming interview uh, and trying to find those documents again and look back at the one that I originally read I've been able to find not the original but of course but I've been able to find some other ones that uh, I had orig originally intended to look at so they have some really interesting things in them that will be Lots of fun for us to read about and discuss. And of course this all pertains to the Flat Earth and the Dome and the North Pole being the center of our beautiful, beautiful Flat Earth. So, let's get to that. So here we are. The first one we're going to start with is called secret voyages and we're not supposed to have access to this book supposedly look at the ring on her finger Ooh. secret voyages mi hmm hush hush double top secret so because i'm going to be reading this from google books some portions are going to be cut from it but Here's a general idea of what we'll be talking about over the next little while on my channel. So, history, American discovery, exploration, pre-Columbian voyages, Indians, Native Americans, horses, old world and new world cultural contact, diffusion before Columbus, history, China, Zheng He, Zhu Fu, Zhu Wen, the 1418 Ming map, the history of England, Nicholas of Lynn, John and Sebastian Cabot, Queen Elizabeth, Francis Drake, John Dee, King Arthur, Edward III, Roger Bacon. History, Ancient Bible, Pharaoh Hatshepsut, King Solomon, Solomon's Mines, Ophir, African American, Marco Polo, Pope Clement IV, the Renaissance, Amerigo Vespucci, who many claim that America was named after, Cartography, the history of Mercator, Longitude, Clocks and Navigation, Inventions, The History of, Telescope, Longitude, Compass, Mechanical Clocks, Guns, and Espionage. So I'm going to pause there to talk about something I've been meaning to get out for some time, and I think I'm going to put this movie out because of this. This is something I've meant to talk about, about the show Connections and Connections 2. I used to watch it a lot with my parents when I was a young boy. And in that, they talk about that the art of and the science of exploration and of clocks and navigation and cartography were all linked to and aided by the creation and invention of actual mechanical clocks and what they talked about is that they couldn't properly navigate the oceans and find their proper longitude without a very stable clock they needed the clock in order to tell how far they had traveled over time in order to tell their actual longitude 
and they use the Greenwich Mean uh, the Greenwich Mean Time (GMT). They use that line as their as their indicator. But what's interesting is that we notice that that all happened at around the same time. So this book and the portions that we're reading here come from the 1490s up to the 1600s, and we can see that this is a result of a search for 1577. And it was at these times, either way you look at it, the discovery of the new world and discovery of uh, the and, and the invention of and, and the, the the formation of the sciences of uh, naval travel are affected by and aided by good sound mechanical clocks. They are intricately tied together. So something that we could speculate about is that the Earth was actually um, discovered to be flat and that that is when we figured out clocks and that the Sun is really the hour hand moving around the Earth. So where we are with this is that if you think about a clock and the way that a clock works we all know this as flat earthers that actually a clock face is just the flat earth with the sun moving around it in this direction and the hour hand would just be the sun on the clock it moves in this direction from east to west around the earth and so really that is what the clock is and that's what the flat earth really is so you know, we could speculate that that we didn't make clocks first, that we had sundials, and that it's only after the discovery of the North Pole and being positive that the Earth is flat and the way that it functions that we actually developed the clock. So I'm gonna. So now we'll carry on with the uh, the rest of of what we've been talking about 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 these uh, ancient voyages, ancient secret historical voyages. So continuing, inventions, history of the telescope, longitude, the compass, mechanical clocks, guns, and espionage. Seven, Indians, the history of native or indigenous horses, the bow and arrow, the Mongolian bow. Human geography, cultural and plant diffusion, migration, uh, maze, history, Egypt, incense. We won't necessarily go into all these things. This is just a, I thought that was an interesting part to read. I thought you guys might find that interesting. The secret contents. And what we have is a forward by Gavin Menzies. Prologue. Theater Sabrosa, The Vision of the Pharaoh Queen, Solomon's Heirs, Zhu Fu in the Isle of Fu Sang. So earlier we were talking about where do these false flag people go? What happens to them after they have served their false flag role? Where do they go after that? Interesting, funny they show the globe there. Um, so this Isle of, where is it here? Zhu Fu in the Isle of Fu Sang. Um, and some of the other, Nicholas in the search for Avalon. Zheng He in the Forbidden Land. Martin Beheim or Beheim and Terra Incognita, Vespucci's Mundus Novus, Empire of the Virgin Queen, Epilogue, Under the Midnight Sun. So, 
Yeah, where do these people go? Is there an island? Is there a place that they're taking off to? Just another interesting part to talk about. So, that's where we're going to be going. I'm going to be looking through this document and some other documents that reference ancient exploration. This will be another one of them. I'll bring up some of the other parts here. A letter dated 1577 from Mercator to John D. Imago Mundi, Stockholm. The Mercator Atlas of Europe. So there's really a lot of interesting stuff here that we're going to dig into a bit of. Some interesting, more, more interesting maps and interesting images to look at. I'm just trying to get to a few of them for you here. Here we go. Here's the Fusang bit. New World Geography, Fusang. We can have a look at this map. He's got an indicator here, an arrow pointing at something. Whether that's Japan or the West Coast, who knows? It talks about it. We'll get into this here. Here we go. Treasure map of paradise, the Isle of Immortals. The ancient Chinese geography is represented in this 19th century printed map from Korea called the Shanghai Jing or Chonhado. The map portrays the old world at the center surrounded by a ring continent of overseas lands. This is a symbolic type of map that was intended to represent the approximate locations of major countries. The names used to identify geographical places such as Uncle Dragon Country or Heavenly Mountains reflects the terminology used in the first to third millennium before Christ. So the map's origins are probably very ancient. The map clearly shows that the legendary Fusang or the Isle of Immortals was situated all across all the way across the Pacific Ocean beyond Japan. The circle near the center represents the capital of China. Shown above are the yin-yang symbol, the serpent turtle of Zhenmu, Polaris, or the god of the north, and the legendary symbol for the Ling-Chi mushrooms that we'll get into shortly. Very interesting discussion there that they were actually searching for, um, that the Chinese found North America and the Mexicans searching for uh, ancient mushrooms to get high on to be able to see the future and to be proper shamans powerful shamans so that's some of the more of the of the interesting stuff that we'll get into here so this is their some of the artwork and depictions after they met with the the mexican inhabitants we can see some of those aztec inspired artwork and some of the stuff down the side here and this all links up with the ancient um uparts and the ancient stuff that we've looked at on my channel quite a bit. So, that's what we'll be getting into uh, very shortly uh, at Flatwater. Thanks for watching, guys. We'll in this matter of discovery in hand, and chiefly of these most northerly countries and isles have caused me since the last year to send into diverse places beyond the sea and to men there in our age rightfully esteemed to wit thee, honest philosopher and mathematicians, Gerardus Mercator, and to that learned geographer, Abrahamus Ortelius, whose company also, since my first letter sent over, I have had of late in my poorhouse at Mortlake, and of the other in my youth, sufficient record is published of our great familiarity. And the chief pith of this chapter will testify the honest and philosophical regards that he had of my earnest request to him, and as much as speedily he returned the very principal authority whereupon he fashioned unto us that strange plat of the septentrional islands, that thereby our men, adventurers and discoverers, might understand what, I, what account is to be made, credit is to be given to the same description. This then other matter I received from him lately. Uh, folder, 
Portfolio 265B, April 20, 1577. To the most famous, Dr. John D., his master and much esteemed patron, at Mortlake on the Thames near London, with three enclosures. The three enclosures are some map resources. This is one of them. It's uh, too dark to really see well, but I will include some further ones, some other ones in this video later on, that are much more clear. Folio 266, lines missing. Fearing it would not reach you quickly enough if transmission were delayed, I have written down everything you have about the northern regions and to these, etc. So Jacobus Schneunen of Herzogenbusch traveled the world like Mandeville, but described what he saw with better judgment. He wrote in the Belgic language. The ideas about the northern regions, which some time ago I extracted from him, follow word for word, save for where the sake of brevity or speed I have translated into Latin, and if not always his words, I have retained the meaning. Note that it is by experience found that near the North Pole in the very dead of winter time is a continual glimmering twilight. At the least, the farther help of light, the moon's recourse above their horizon being not mentioned. So this is on the left here. It's, these are some of the inset uh, additional information that I'll, I'll read as needed. In northern Norway, which is called Dusky Norway, there are three months of darkness during which there is no sunlight but perpetual twilight. I think we all know about this, about the Arctic sun. This north Norway lies over against the country called the Province of Darkness, or Obscure Province in Latin, Provincia Tenebrosa. Concerning it, however, there is nothing written in Marco Polo, and the Province of Darkness is the most western bound of the Grand Chan's land. In between this province and Dusky Norway, there is only 12 miles of sea. From North Norway, you cannot reach the indrawing sea, which lies beyond Greenland, for it lies still further northward. This North Norway stretches as far as the mountain ranges, which encompass the North Pole, and borders on this mountain range for about 17 miles by land. The rest is all sea. And this is the same mountain range which, in folio 266b, comes close, within about 15 French miles, and then stands further off towards the east. And near here, toward the north, those little people who, of whom there is also mention in the Gestae Arthurii, and their borders on it, besides a beautiful open land. And this land lies between the province of Darkness and the province of Burgi. But between each of these provinces and these lands lies an indrawing sea. And this province, the open land, has a mountain border of over 72 French miles by land. These facts and more about the geography of the north are to be found in the beginning of the Gestae Arturiae. The islands adjacent to the North Pole were formerly called Ciliae, or perhaps Thule, and now the Septentrionals. Among them is North Norway, and there are many small rivers, some two, some one, some three keenings, wide, more or less, and they're called indrawing seas because the current always flows northward so strongly that no wind can make a ship sail back against it. So keenings are an old measure. Uh, we can get into that later as to what... Okay, so it says here a keening was 17 to 20 miles. Again, we have to see what their version of miles are at this time. Uh, so back to the indrawing seas. Uh, no wind can make a ship sail back against these indrawing seas, and in these latitudes the mountains reach up to the clouds and are almost all rock bare of vegetation, and it is almost always misty and dull weather, and it is well known that beyond 70 or 78 degrees of latitude there is no human habitation. Moreover, this 78th parallel goes in a circle around the Arctic Pole in the form of a high mountain range. So, 
already so far what we have is uh, land mass at the northern pole that's not like what we've had described it has an indrawing sea uh, and a huge mountain range which wraps around the entire 78th parallel in a circle around the Arctic Pole. So continuing on now, uh, part of the army of King Arthur which conquered the northern islands and made them subject to him and we read that nearly 4,000 persons entered the indrawing seas who never returned. But in AD 1364, eight of these people came to the king's court in Norway. Among them were two priests, one of whom had an astrolabe, who was descended in the fifth generation from a Bruxellensis. One, I say, the eight were sprung from, those who had penetrated the northern regions in the first ships. That great army of Arthur had lain all the winter of 530 AD in the northern islands of Scotland, and on May 3 a part of it crossed over into Iceland, and four ships of the aforesaid land had come out of the north and warned Arthur of the indrawing seas, so that Arthur did not proceed further, but peopled all the islands between Scotland and Iceland, and also peopled Grockland, which is their uh, name for Greenland. So it seems the indrawing sea only begins beyond Grockland. In this Grockland he found people 23 feet tall, that is to say, of the feet with, with which land is measured. So they correct this as well later on. This is, I think, just a, a combination of the wrong verbiage here. When those four ships returned, there were sailors who asserted that they knew where the magnetic lands were. So, where it says here, in this Grockland, he found people 23 feet tall. Uh, that will be corrected later. It's four, pe four feet tall, 23 people. Uh, Lacuna. After Arthur afterwards put on board a fleet of 12 ships, about 1,800 men and about 400 women. They sailed northwards on May 3 in the year following that in which the former ships had departed. And of these twelve ships, five were driven on the rocks in a, st in a storm, but the rest of them made their way between the high rocks on June 18, which was 44 days after they had set out. More precisely, some of them made their way. The priest who had, had the astrolabe related to the king of Norway that in A.D. 1360 there had come to these northern islands an English Minorite from Oxford, who was a good astronomer, etc., leaving the rest of the party who had come to the islands he journeyed further through the whole of the north, etc., and put into writing all the wonders of those islands and gave the king of England this book, which he called in Latin Inventio Fortunatae, which book began at the last climate, that is to say latitude 54 degrees continuing to the pole. This monk said that the mountain range goes round the north like a wall, save that in 19 places the indrawing channels flow through it, whereof the widest is not above 12 French miles across, the narrowest three-quarter miles and through the narrowest no ship would be able to go. So what we have here is the monk said that the mountain range that wraps around the North Pole goes around it like a wall, but in 19 places, indrawing rivers or channels flow through it. The widest of these is not uh, more than 12 French miles across. Uh, no ship would be able to go back against this current because of the rush of the water. The mountain range is surrounded by sea except in northern Norway where the Norwegian mountain range reaches it for a width of about 17 miles and right under the North Star, opposite Norway, there lies a fair level land which is uninhabited where many beautiful, and we lose it here, lacuna, in the east there stretches out an arm of land which is nearly all wooded and narrows continually. The farther north, question mark, 
the more so that it is not more than one mile wide where it meets the mountain range. Otherwise, no land touches the circumference of mountains anywhere. But in many places, the sea is so narrow that one can see the far side. <coughs> Pardon me. And the mountain range covers a breadth of eight miles, question mark. And in the whole circle, said the Minorite, there is no habitation except on the east side, where in that narrow land already mentioned there were 23 people not above four feet tall, whereof 16 were women. This monk said that in two other places further inland he found a great piece of ship's planking and other box which had been used in big ships besides many trunks of trees which at some earlier date had been hewn down, so that he could say with certainty that there had formerly been habitation but the, there, but the people had now gone, and that the country where they, the gypsies, or sorry, the pygmies, I believe he means, lived was more than six degrees broad, that is to say, twenty days' journey, and no one could cover the distance on foot, and it was ten degrees long, that is, thirty-three days' journey. Also there lay there, said he, an indrawing sea of five channels, gathered together which came through the mountain range out of the nineteen channels mentioned. And in this indrawing sea is twelve French excuse me, is twelve French miles wide and measures across about four days journey. Uh, we have a footnote in Ms. in another hand. Hugo de Hibernia, the Minorite. So that's the name of the gentleman. Uh, Note that diverse places like these northern isles are almost within the keening of the mainlands opposite to them, but in no place does it touch. This inhabited place of 10 degrees long and 6.6 degrees broad may have another more artificial exposition than so by day's journals to understand the degrees of longitude. That place, about 0.8 degrees of latitude, and so to the reckon, 0.3 days, Ernie, and three-fourths upon one. A day's journey is evidently reckoned as 18 French miles in terms of average land travel. So I'll continue on with their description of the northern pole here, the indrawing seas, the whirlpool, and the magnetic Mount Meru. And at the vast, at the west of the aforesaid country is another indrawing sea, into which three more channels go out of the aforesaid 19. And that channel which they, the ships, I believe are meant, had entered, also flowed therein. And all these channels which turn tortu tortuously when they come out of the mountains drive ships immediately ashore. But whatever channels flowed straight into the innermost seas into which the nineteen channels gather, and these ships must of necessity be carried current-wise, i.e. inwards, and become lost. Also said this minorite, these innermost seas number four, and the one which lies on the west side was quite thirty-four, French miles abroad, and on the other side of this sea was the best and healthiest land in all the north. Also he said that the sea which lay on the east side could never be frozen because so many channels united there, and it was narrow besides so that the current was very strong, but that the one which ran to the west on the west side used to freeze almost every year and remained frozen for sometimes for three months, and in that land he had seen no signs of habitation, but in a country which lay to the north opposite it. He had recognized planks of ships and sea trunks. All of these four countries are high open lands, i.e. plateaus, except some, except some mountains four fathom high. There are many trees of Brazil wood. When this priest with the astrolabe, and it trails off there, 
So there's much Brazil trees growing here. I'll continue on. In the midst of the four countries is a whirlpool, into which there empty these four indrawing seas which divide the north. And the water rushes round and descends into the earth just as if one were pouring it through a filter funnel. It is four degrees wide on every side of the pole, that is to say eight degrees altogether, except that right under the pole there lies a bare rock in the midst of the sea. So this would be Mount Meru. Its circumference is almost 33 French miles, and it is all of magnetic stone, and is as high as the clouds. So the priest said, who had received the astrolabe from this minorite in exchange for a testament, and the minorite himself had heard that one can see all round it from the sea, and it is black and glistening, and nothing grows thereon, for there is not so much as a handful of soil on it. That was the writing and words of the minorite, who has since journeyed to and fro five times for the King of England on business. They are to be found in a book called Inventio Fortunae, or Fortunatae, of which the minorite himself was author. The foresaid priest al said also to the King of Norway, that in the country where he dwelt not six times a year did it rain, and even that was drizzle, lasting not more than six or seven hours. So some other descriptions are much Brazil trees growing here, on this uh, most beautiful land of the north, a whirlpool in the midst of the North Pole, about or under the North Pole, the whirlpool being 480 miles over or wide, excepting the diameter of the great rock in the middle. A wonderful, great and high rock right under the North Pole. I'll show you where I'm reading here. And in the midst of the foresaid whirlpool. So I'm just going to repeat that so it really sinks in. At the center of our Earth, at the North Pole, what we call the North Pole, the only place that a magnet is pulled towards, being the Northern Pole itself, there is no Southern Pull, and no, therefore no Southern Pole, as it is Antarctica wrapped around us, an ice sheet wrapped around us. So there is only a pull towards this Northern Magnetic Rock Pole. Uh, the whirlpool around the magnetic rock and around the, mag the North Pole is about 480 miles wide and uh, so as we've said a wonderful great high rock rises in the midst. Continuing on with the uh, letter here wrapping it up the wind never blows hard enough to drive a corn mill furthermore the air is always cool and the other seven that were with him testified that they had also heard such things as he related said by their elders but they had never seen them this is word for word everything that i have copied out of this author chnoinen years ago farewell most learned man with my most affectionate esteem 1577 gerard mercator and the translation so that's the end of the first that's the end of the letter uh from mercator to john d so there is further uh, documentation of this letter and of the information contained therein. I'll continue on with this now um, to show you, to lend credence to the Flat Earth model and to lend credence further to this story as well to show that it's not just from one letter or from one source. So Dee's first inquiry on the subject of the North had been directed to Ortelius by a letter written in January 1577, which is printed as number 67 
in Hessel's Ortelis Epistulae, 1887. In this letter, the, the writer recalls that his friend had indicated the general expectation of Arctic discoveries from the British people, a matter which he himself had pressed long ago, 1555, correction, 1553 to 1556. He was now urging, indeed insisting, that further attempts should be made, and he goes on to mention his researches into what the ancients had said and done in respect of this voyage, as well as his recent preparation of a new nautical manual for the sailors. But his particular inquiry at the moment was for the authority that Archelius had used for inserting the names of Cape Paramantia, Los Jardinos, and some others on the north coast of North America, names which appeared on no other map. He begged for an immediate answer, for our people are already maturing their plans for the northern seaboard. Last year they merely paid their respects to the Greenland Strait, but they concluded with good reason that the whole shore could be circumnavigated and they could reach the eastern ocean that way. There is no record of how Ortelius answered Dee's letter, but he came to England in the spring when he saw William Camden and Richard Hacklight in London, and came down to Dee at Mortlake on March 12th. Five or six weeks later Frobisher sailed on his second voyage. In fact Frobisher was secretly commissioned to look for gold ore and not to search for the Northwest Passage. Meanwhile, Dee had been questioning Mercator as to the province, provenance of the circular inset of the polar regions which appeared on his Great Wall Map of 1569, together with some accompanying legends. The reply he received was dated April 20th, 1577, which is transcribed above. Disappointingly, it provides no fresh clue to the identities of Jacob Schneunen or the author of Inventio Fortunatae, yet it raises the question, must not the latter have visited Greenland, or even Markland, Labrador, in view of the knowledge he, he displays? And again, what was the version of the Gestae Arthurii which all parties referred to familiarly, and which contains such strange new detail of that king's enterprises? So is this what has been covered up and hidden from us? Is this why there's a dew line at the North Pole, um, the defense early warning line? Is this why... Uh, not only is there an Antarctic Treaty, but the Arctic Treaty and the recent uh, talk about who is going to control the Arctic. I think in light of our new discoveries or, or our newfound knowledge of the way that our flat earth plane functions, that it's definitely not out of the question that if this is at the center of our planet, that, that this would be something that they might want to hide. Particularly, uh, what would people think if there was a 480-mile-wide or 500-mile-wide gigantic uh, sucking sound or gigantic whirlpool sucking all of the, the world's oceans into a whirlpool at the center of our Earth? I mean, it would be just as scary uh, as people thinking that they would go off the, the edge of the Earth. And at first glance, it might seem a ridiculous idea, but when you combine it with the other the other functions of the way that our flat Earth plane functions, the other phenomena that are found there, like the, the sun spinning around the magnetic pole, it kind of adds more credence to it and kind of makes it make more sense. So. This is the map that Mercator made showing this area. So you can see here the Borgi Regio, which is, I believe, Canada, uh, or the northern portions of North America and Canada. 
this part. You can see the mountain range here that wraps around. I'm sure you've all seen maps like this and ones in color uh, since you've come to the flat earth. So we have the right here the Ocithicus. I don't know if you can see the blue box there. Borgio Regio, kind of North American area. And I guess you can make out the rest of it. You can see the four channels that are flowing in here. And Mount Meru, of course, or what can be called Mount Meru, uh, the magnetic lodestone in the center. The gigantic mountain of magnets in the center. Uh, also here you have a little further detail on it and some interesting insertions such as one word that I find interesting, we, we still call them the Aurora Borealis, uh, also the Hyperborean or Hyperboreal, and you can see it here, the Hyperborea, Hyperborei Europe, uh, Insular Desert, and Anon Phase, I'm not sure what that says actually. Over here this on this portion, you can see that what they've done is this is the full 360 and it's just been opened up, splayed out to add this other information. Uh, so what you have here under this blue area is Articus Scythia Intra Imaumontum and you can see on the bottom there uh, Hyperborei and Moscovia. So there's Russia, uh, Eastern and Western Europe and all encompassed in this area here. Russia Muscovia right here. Uh, see if you can see this right here. Muscovia is right in that box there. Okay. Uh, here would be England and Western Europe. And then over here we have Canada uh, and the eastern coast of the of North America. So, <coughs> all we have, I'm going to continue on now with uh, some further writers who've spoken about this to add credence to this story that there may actually be a giant hole at the center of our Earth sucking in the oceans. The eight strangers told King Magnus, and the fact about the Minorites' journeys to and fro after he had written his book. That the book Inventio Fortunatae really existed does not depend on the evidence of Jacobus Streunen or Johann Reusch. Or sorry, excuse me. It does not depend on the evidence of Jacobus Streunen because Johann Reusch quoted from it and used it. John Dee made a marginal correction of its title, and it is also casually mentioned by Bartholomew de la Cassis in his Historia de las Indias in 1570. When, speaking of floating and burning islands in the Western Ocean, he says that there is mention of the same in the book called Inventio Fortunatae, which shows that he probably read that as well. A comparison of Mercator's Arctic map with that of Reusch in the Rome Ptolemy 1508 and with the same region on Beheim's Globe of 1492, together with a study of all the map legends side by side with Mercator's letter, makes it possible to reconstruct at the least the basic topographical information contained therein of the Friar's book. Briefly, according to the writer of Inventio Fortunatae, the world's continent was bordered at some distance polewards by an indrawing or in-sucking sea. 
which by a means of 19 channels broke through a lofty circumpolar mountain range in latitude 78 and 79 degrees. These channels occurred in groups of 3, 4, 5, and 7 respectively, and the four groups gathered or flowed into four indrawing seas, which all poured into a single central sea about the pole. <coughs> Here there was a lofty shining black rock of magnetic stone, 33 miles or leagues in circumference that is to say about 10 miles across, and here the ocean waters swirled round in a whirlpool and were sucked down into the bowels of the earth. The four indrawing seas separated four land areas, of which two as Mercator and Roishagree were inhabited, and two not. Mercator puts pygmies or scralings in one of them, Roish puts a people called Arumphii, or Arumphili, who appear also in one of his imaginary Atlantic islands, Fel Arumphili alas Chibes. Beheim, although he shows 19 or perhaps only 18 channels leading from the main ocean and gives some vague indication of the high mountains, does not completely separate two of the four land masses, while the pole is masked by the metal axis of his globe. The general resemblance of his outlines is apparent. So the legends on Reusch's map uh, run as follows. We read in the book the Inventio Inventiae Fortunatae that beneath the Arctic Pole there is a high rock of magnetic stone 33 German miles in circumference. The indrawing seas around this rock flowing in as if in a vessel that lets water down a hole, i.e. a funnel. There are four surrounding islands of which two are inhabited, but they are bordered by huge mountains 24 days journey across which forbid human habitation. Here the indrawing sea begins. Here the ship's compass does not hold, nor can ships containing iron turn back. In note, one, the high rock is said to measure 33 German miles, units which are four times the French miles of the Mercator letter, while the latter on his map writes 33 leagues. This is typical of the current confusion as to measures of length at the time. Mercator, besides, merely calls the rock lofty and black without reference to its magnetic quality, for he had his own theory about the location of the magnetic pole. Reusch's reference to the upsetting of the magnetic compass may have arisen from his own actual experience of his great variation in the Labrador region, and he also appears to have put his own interpretation on this, and onto the fact that the ships could not turn back once in the indrawing seas. So we'll continue here, touching the description of the North Parts I had taken the same out of the voyage of James Schneunen of Hartsevin Busk, which alleged certain conquests of uh, of Arthur, king of Britzine, and the most part, the chiefest things among the rest he learned of a certain priest in the King of Norway's court in the year 1364. This priest was ascended in the fifth generation from them which King Arthur had sent to inhabit these islands, and he reported in the year 1360 a certain English friar, a Franciscan and a mathematician of Oxford came into these islands, who leaving them and passing further by his magical art, described all those places that he saw and took the height of them with his astrolabe, according to the form that I have set down in my map. And as I have taken it out of the aforesaid Jacob Schneunen, he said that those four indrafts were drawn into an inward gulf or whirly pool with so great a force that the ships which once entered therein could by no means be driven back again, and that there is never in these parts so much wind blowing as might be sufficient to drive a corn mill. Geraldus Cambronales hath certain words altogether alike with these.
Hakluyt follows this translation with a further testimony taken from a summary which Dee had drawn up from Mercator's letter for the information of the Queen. Anno 1360, that is to wit, in the thirty-four years of the reign of the triumphant King Edward III, a friar of Oxford, being a good astronomer, went in company with others to the most northern islands of the world, and there leaving his company together, he traveled alone and purposely described all the northern islands, with the indrawing seas and the record thereof, at his return he delivered to the King of England, the name of which book is Inventio Fortunatae, Alter Fortunae, Qui liber incipi agradu 54 usque ad polum. Sorry, I don't speak Latin, I'm just doing my best with it, bear with me. Which friar, for sundry purposes, after that did five times pass from England thither and home again. Percator is four further inscriptions placed on the map itself, which are of assistance in distinguishing the great polar islands described in the letter. They read as follows. This channel has five mouths, entries, and because of its narrow, swift current, it never freezes. Here live, here live pygmies at most four feet tall, who are like those in Greenland called scralings. This channel is entered by three mouths and remains frozen for three months every year. It's 37 leagues long. This island is the best and healthiest of the whole north. The ocean rushes in between these islands by 19 mouths and makes four channels by which it is incessantly carried northwards and there it disappears into the bowels of the earth. Okay, so, uh, it carries on here, and because of whoever has created the rest of this document, they go into further reasons why they do or don't believe it. If you want to get further into that, uh, I will provide a link to this full document. I'm sure quite a few flat earthers have already seen and read this. So, here it goes on further about the locations of Friesland, uh, how Friesland was near Iceland and Greenland, uh, further about their, the visit there of Jakob Schneunen, and it goes on about him uh, being the founder of Christianity in that area. So, and then it continues on trying to give further information which proves or disproves meticity of this letter. Uh, I'll leave the authenticity of this letter to, to you to be the judge of that. Um, and what I'll do now is just show you a few more um, versions of that map, or versions of information that's shown in that map. So we'll start right here. And what we have here is Orbis Terrae Compendiosa Descriptio, which is another Mercator map. Or at least a lot of the uh, information in it is from Mercator, I should say. Uh, it didn't turn out as well as I thought it would, but you can see the two islands here and on the other side the other two islands which is a, a link up when you add the when you look at the uh, accuracy of this map as a whole you know in the known parts you can see that they were not being silly making this map and so when he put those parts on there he was not being silly it is what he believed was there or knew was there
this is a better version of it this is just a polar uh, I wouldn't call it a projection just a, a polar map aiming straight down and you see the Great Northern Sea and Greenland and Baffins Bay the pink side on the right side here is North America and the northern part of Canada and the left side would be Russia and Europe and Asia we'll carry on uh, a more recent version you can see that all the datum is very accurate right up till you get up to the north and then it's just simply cut off as though we're not allowed to know what is there this is a, a picture showing Orithia being raptured or taken by the Boreans. So you can see literature which I don't necessarily or don't at all subscribe to about um, the hermeneutic interpretation of mankind. But what, what I think is interesting here is that there's all these links throughout history of the, the Boreans and the Hyperboreans and that the people there were very advanced people um, that Atlantis and Hyperborea are connected and are the same place. I think this has become an obvious uh, conclusion to a lot of flat earthers who have looked into this side of the research. This is an old uh, uh, Indian or from India or from, um, <coughs> pardon me, uh, Buddhist interpretation of the earth, the earth planes and some of its uh, inhabitations. Uh, sorry, it's a Burmese map of the world showing traces of medieval European map making. Pardon me, it's Burma, so China. Uh, this is just another photograph. Here is another uh, old map that was done by Mercator or assisted by Mercator. And again, you can see the northern polar region showing Gronslandia and other aspects that tie into the last maps that I just showed you. But these maps are nowhere near as good. Again here, this is an inset from a very large map. And you can see that, that it's called the Septentrionalis, uh, the Franciscan. Um, and in the inset here, you can see the further detail of some of these islands and some of the makeup. And again, as soon as you get to that northern pole, that 78 degree, they cut off the information and you're not allowed to see what's up there. Same thing here. It's called the Borealis. So again, the Boreans, Hyperborea. And this is northern Canada. Okay, and as you can see again, this is from a large world map, which is very accurate when you take the map at a, as a whole. So I don't think that he was adding silliness or make-believe when he created these maps. So, in conclusion, I, I guess you've seen, I think you've seen what I, I wanted to show you. Um, I'll add a link at the bottom of this video 
continue on with our, our learning about the flat earth and and the reality of the environment that we live in. Um, I know that this is difficult information. I'm just going to go on a little further about how difficult this information is for people to take in. Uh, I've been talking about this stuff with a lot of people and I see that that our indoctrination because of it beginning at and before our birth because of us being so indoctrinated since birth it's, it takes people months literally months of conscious and subconscious uh, reiteration of this information to come to the conclusion that they are at a flat earth I also I love the quotes from uh, the Zetetic Astronomy of Samuel Rowbottom where he talks about that if people don't know that the earth is flat it's merely from a lack of knowing about all of the information of course everyone who knows and is a flat earther knows that it's very simple and very easy once they know you know water being level is a showstopper the sun the the earth going around the sun and it would how the fact that if you trace it out on a piece of paper or trace it out in any way you'd see that if it were a heliocentric model the night and day would flip every six months so we flat earthers know that it's flat and we know how easy it is to know that it's flat but we have to remember how hard it was for us to come over originally and how much your mind needed to unbrainwash itself so that's all I have for now. I'll be carrying on and having further videos about this stuff, I hope, if you guys like it. Um, if not, too bad. Uh, I'll thank you for your comments below, and good day. Summary of the Book of the Dreams. We've already been through the Book of the Watchers in Enoch, and so this will continue on with what's happened there. So, I've read you the fragments, and now we're going to put it back together. The fragments of and allusions to the Manichaean version of the Book of the Giants have been recovered in medieval manuscripts in various languages, including Middle Persian, Sogdian, Uyghur, Coptic, Parthian, and Latin. The following is a summary of the fret the surviving fragments and allusions, which I have attempted extremely tentatively to put in sequence. The summaries are also very tentative. M1. The two hundred demons descend to earth. Their descent from heaven stirs up the other heavenly beings. They descend because of the beauty of the women they saw there, and they reveal forbidden arts and heavenly mysteries in order to seduce these women, and they bring about ruin on the earth. Enoch warns that the coming of the two hundred demons will lead only to herding speech and hard labor. They then subjugate the human race, killing hundreds of thousands of the righteous in battle, forcibly marrying beautiful women, and enslaving the nations. The angels veil Enoch, and the righteous endure the burning, and Enoch the sage is mentioned. Uh, Samazad Samhaza begets two giant sons, Sahim Oyah and Patsam Naraman or Achya Chaya, 
and the other demons and Yaksas beget the rest of the giants. So we see that there is one split lineage that came directly from Samyaza, uh, and that 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 one is notable and mentioned, and that all the others come, the other Yaksas beget the rest of the giants. The giants grow up and wreak ruin upon the earth and the human race. The lamentation of humanity reaches up to heaven. Yima, a transmogrification of the Jewish god according to Manny's cosmology, accepts the homage of humankind as they plead for help. And someone boasts that Psalm and his brother will live and rule forever in their unequaled power and strength. The giant Hobabas, or Hombaba, robs someone of his wife and the giants fall out among themselves and begin killing one another and other creatures. Psalm and his brother are mentioned. It appears that Psalm has a dream in which a tablet was thrown in the water. It seems to have borne three signs, one portending woe, one portending their flight, and one portending their destruction. Naraman then has a dream about a garden full of trees and rows, and two hundred of something perhaps trees, it is trees, are mentioned. Um, someone recites a list of proverbs involving contrasts, usually between the lesser and the greater or the derivative from the source. Naraman tells how he saw in the dream some who were weeping and lamenting and many others who were sinful rulers. The giant Mahoe, son of Virogdad, Barakel, of 1 Enoch 6-7 hears a cautioning voice as he flies along at sunrise and he is guided to safety by Enoch the Apostle and the heavenly voice which warn him to descend before the sun sets his wings on fire shades of Icarus he lands and the voice leads him to Enoch and fragment M15 Enoch interprets this dream indicating that the trees represented the egregory the watchers and also mentioning the giants who were born of women something the trees are pulled out of. In M16, someone reports that someone ordered him not to run away, but to bring the message written on two stone tablets, showing it first to Naraman. He has brought them in order to share the contents of one tablet pertaining to the demons with the giants. Samazad tells him to read the writing by Enoch. Enoch the Apostle gives a message of judgment to the demons and their children telling them that they will have no peace and that they will see the destruction of their children. He refers to the giants ruling for 120 years and then he predicts either an era of earthly fecundity, presumably after the flood, or else the flood itself. And he's predicting the flood itself. Psalm exhorts the other giants to cheer up and eat but they are too sorrowful to eat and instead fall asleep. Mahoe goes to Atan Bush otherwise known as Utnapistim either another giant or another name for Enoch, and tells him all. When Mahoe returns, Psalm has a dream in which he ascends to heaven. He sees the water of the earth consumed with heat, and a demon comes out of the water. Some beings, the protecting spirits, are invisible, but he sees the heavenly rulers. Then M19, Psalm, Samazad, and Mahoe have a conversation. So remember that Samazad is Samyaza. Mahawe mentions his father, Varogdad. There are obscure references to weapons and a blessing on someone who saw something and escaped death, or would have escaped death. Sam and Mahawe search for something. 
Someone gives satisfactory assurance to Mahoe that he will be protected from Sam, but nevertheless Sam and Mahoe fall out and begin to fight. The wicked demons are glad to see the Apostle Enoch and assemble timidly before him. Apparently they promise to reform their ways and they ask for mercy. Uh, the wicked demons are glad to see the Apostle Enoch and assemble timidly before him. Enoch warns the demons that they will be taken from a fire to face eternal damnation, despite their belief that they would never lose their misused power. He also addresses their sinful, misbegotten sons, the giants, and describes how the righteous will fly over the fire of damnation and gloat over the souls inside it, and guard that they stay in there, I would add. Uh, M23, they, presumably the demons, take some heavenly helpers hostage. As a result, the angels descend from heaven, terrifying the 200 demons, who take human form and hide among human beings. The angels separate out the human beings and set a watch over them. They seize the giants from the demons and lead them, the children of the giants, to safety in 32 distant towns prepared for them by the living spirit at Aryan Wiesen, the traditional homeland of the Indo-Iranians, in the vicinity of the sacred Mount Sumeru and other mountains. These people originated the arts and crafts. The 200 demons fight a massive and fiery battle with the four angels. M24, a tanbush does battle, accompanied by watchers and giants, and three of the giants are killed. An angel and others are also killed. Oyach and Ayach resolve to keep their promise to do battle, and they boast of their prowess. Four angels, by divine command, bind the Igrigori with everlasting chains in a dark prison, and annihilate their children. Even before the rebellion of the Igrigori, this prison had been built for them under the mountains. In addition, Thirty-six towns had been prepared for the habitation of the wicked and long-lived sons of the giants before they were even born. Oyach, or Aya, the primordial monster Leviathan, and the archangel Raphael engage in a great battle, and they vanished, according to one tradition. Oyah survived the flood and fought this battle after it. Three thousand two hundred and eighty years passed between the time of Enoch and the time of King Vishtasp who ruled at the time of the prophet Zoroaster, who, along with Buddha and Christ, was an apostle who came before the final apostle Manny. There's a couple interesting things I wanted to mention there. That um, when they talked about they're taken from the fire, it just endure the burning, and Enoch the sage is mentioned. Now that ties into what we've been talking about recently, or and some things that I saw that, again, that Zen... Garcia was talking about and his amazing stuff that he's tied up and what he was talking about there is that the righteous actually in between this period and uh, and Christ coming back to earth or coming to earth for the first time the, the first appearance of the Savior that the righteous had to endure that time period in hell because they had no Savior to come down and take them from Sheol and that that is what happens in the Chronicles of Longinus and so go and check out that work I've posted it it's part of this playlist it's been part of the playlist that this will be part of so you can see it there or go to Zen's work at Endeavor Freedom and check out the Chronicles of Longinus or Longinus and the Thracian Chronicles and you'll see what I'm talking about there
after that, we also the other thing that I wanted to notice is that for some reason this person believes that the final apostle is Mani or Manny. An effort to nuance this version is given after the summary. So A1. The angelic watchers beget the Nephilim and the giants, perhaps the same creatures, but perhaps not, through miscegenation with mortal women. Uh, these rapacious monsters inflict bloodshed and injustice upon the earth and destruction upon the sea, animals, plants, cattle, and humanity. All this is reported to Enoch, the scribe of interpretation. Enoch addresses God, praising him for his glory, knowledge, strength, and creative acts. A number, a number of giants, including Hobabas and Humbaba, Mahoe, and perhaps the watcher Barak El, have a conversation in which they discuss killing, perhaps, of human beings. Following hints from the Manichaean version and the Midrash of Samyaza, perhaps we should reconstruct here an episode in which the giants have a first pair of dreams predicting the Great Flood. If so, the first dream seems to involve the effacing of a writing tablet by submerging it in water. Stuckenbrook also suggests that a fragment which refers to three shoots in a garden belongs to the second parable. The first dream may have told of an angel doing the effacing as a symbol of the destruction wrought by the flood. The second may have told of an angel descending and cutting down all but three shoots, representing the sons of Noah in the garden. Mahaway consults Enoch the first time. It is possible that the first tablet was introduced at this point. These episodes are entirely lost, but their existence is deduced by later references in the fragments. The giants Oya and Mahoe have a conversation in which Mahoe tells Oya something he heard while in the presence of his, Mahoe's father, the watcher Barakel. Oya responds that he too has heard of four marvels, and he starts to make a comparison which pertains to a woman giving birth. There is a conversation among the giants in which one of them admits that, despite his own might, he has been unable to prevail in war against some heavenly beings, presumably the archangels. Oya mentions an oppressive dream which has disturbed him, and someone tells the giant Gilgamesh to recount his dream as well. Oya says something to his brother Hahya about the watcher Azazel, the watchers and the giants. In another fragment, that may continue this speech, one of the giants resigns himself that there is no escape and that he and the others must die for their misdeeds. He refers to a vision that hinders him from sleeping. Someone enters the assembly of the giants. Perhaps a conversation continues in which the giants anticipate with dread their coming destruction in the flood for their sins, in which they will be stripped of their form and reduced to being evil spirits. The Watchers tell the Giants that they themselves are imprisoned and perhaps that the Giants are being defeated. Mahawe and the two tablets are mentioned. The second tablet is now read. It is a letter from Enoch to the Watcher Samyaza and his companions, and they are rebuked for their and their sons, the Giants' corrupt acts, which have come to the attention of the Archangel Raphael. They are warned of imminent destruction and ordered to release their hostages and to pray. Nevertheless, Oya informs the giants of a message from Gilgamesh and Hobabas, which involves the cursing of the princes and which cheers the giants up. The two giants Oya and Haya have dreams. Haya describes his in the assembly of the giants. He dreamed of gardeners watering a garden which produced great shoots, but a disaster of some sort destroyed the garden in a deluge of water and fire. The other giants are unable to interpret his dream. 
Haya proposes that they consult Enoch for an interpretation. Then his brother Oya reports that he too had a dream, in which God descended to the earth. Thrones were set up, and God sat enthroned amid a multitude of angels and presided over a judgment based on the opening of certain books. The giants presumably unable to interpret this dream either, summon Mahoe and send him to Enoch, whom he has encountered before, to ask him to interpret the dreams. Mahoe takes wing and flies across the great desert until Enoch sees him and calls to him. Mahoe refers to this as his second visit and makes the request. Bits of Enoch's interpretation may survive in a fragment that mentions the violent deaths of a number of watchers, Nephilim, and giants, and also in a small fragment that says, No peace to you. Enoch pronounces an eschatological or post-diluvian blessing of earthly prosperity. Presumably much of the story came after this point and is now lost. Reconstruction of the Aramaic Book of Giants remains extremely subjective, but a number of objective factors limit the possible arrangements and point us in certain directions. The most important external factor is the assured sequence of fragments in some of the manuscripts based on physical joins. So we see that they're having problems with putting these things together and seeing how clearly they line up. Uh, a third factor is the internal evidence of the fragments themselves. Stuckenbrook, building on Garcia Martinez's comments, allows for passages that pertain to the early part of the Watcher's Giants narrative when the Giants are free agents after they, or better, the Watchers, have been imprisoned. He also points to the reference to two tablets in A10, with the second tablet being read later than the first, and to Mahoe's second visit to Enoch in A13. In both cases, earlier lost portions of the narrative are hinted at. The biggest difference between Suckenbrook's sequencing and those of some other commentators is that he reconstructs two pairs of two dreams. Bayer, Reeves, and Garcia uh, Martinez group the fragments pertaining to dreams into one episode. Cook, however, does reconstruct multiple dream episodes, although not in precisely the same order as Struckenbrook, and Puch or Puek accepts the necessity of an earlier pair of dreams, although he does not accept that the material assigned to the second dream by Stuckenbrook in A5 belongs there, he puts it correctly, in my view, in the first dream. So we see that they really are fighting over how these reconstructions go together. And we see that the founder of the Manichaean religion was the Apostle Manny, in 216-76 to 76 CE, who was raised in southern Mesopotamia in a Jewish-Christian Baptist sect called the Elkazites. From age 12 on, Manny began to have visions. Eventually, his visionary experiences led to his being expelled from the sect, and he then founded his own religion, sending out missions to Iran, India, Syria, and Egypt. Late in his life, he fell out of royal favor and was sent to prison where he died. He wrote detailed scriptures so that his doctrines would be preserved forever, even going so far as to invent a new script to write them in. But over time, nearly all of these scriptures have been lost. This makes it very difficult to reconstruct his original theology. We know that he drew on other world religions to interpret himself as the culminating revelatory intermediary for Christianity, Zoroastrianism, and Buddhism. We also know that the Manichaean religion taught an extremely complicated system, Gnostic dualism, centered around a cosmological myth about the war between the originally pristine realms of light and darkness. The physical universe was created as a trick to liberate the captive sparks of light in living beings from the realm of darkness. There were two classes of practicing Manichaeans, the elect who lived ascetic monastic lifestyles of celibacy, vegan 
uh, vegetarianism, etc., and the hearers, who supported the elect financially and otherwise in the hope of being reincarnated themselves as elect in due course. Although most of Manny's scriptures are themselves lost, lists of the titles of these documents survive in works by both friendly and hostile writers who wrote in Coptic, Greek, Arabic, and even Chinese. Allowing for minor corruptions, all the lists mention the same seven works, usually in more or less the same order. These are the Gospel, the Treasure of Life, the Pragmatia, the Treaties, the Book of Mysteries, the Book of Giants, the Epistles, and the Psalms. For our immediate purposes, the only one of interest is the Book of Giants, a work apparently composed in Syriac, an Eastern dialect of Aramaic, and the book was entirely lost until the 20th century, but scant ref references to it survived in Latin, Greek, and Arabic, indicating that it involved battles of the ancient giants. Then about a century ago, many highly fragmentary Manichaean works written in Central Asian languages were recovered archaeologically at Turfan in China, and much of the find remains unpublished even at present. Uh, should we read that again? Then about a hundred years ago, many fragmentary Manichaean works written in Central Asian languages were recovered at Turfan in China, and much of the find remains unpublished. Among the published fragments are many badly eroded manuscripts of the Book of Giants in various languages. So we see again that they have found this very clearly. They probably have a very clear, good book of it, and we are not given that translation. The Manichaean versions adapted the story of the giants to fit Iranian mythology. Uh, Skiervo discusses these adaptations at length, and three of the most striking adjustments have to do with the names of the major characters. Sam or Sam is the name of the immortal dragon slayer in later Iranian epic. His name is given to the giant Ohiyah, and Ohiyah's brother Hahiyah is given the name Naraman, who in Iranian epic is a figure closely connected to Sam, either identified with him or presented as one of his close relatives. The name of the father of the giant Mahoe, the demon Varogdad, means given by lightning in Persian, a loose translation of Barak El, which is Hebrew for lightning of God. The watcher Barak El seems to be the father of Mahoe in the Aramaic version of the Book of Giants. Between Mani's Book of Giants and the stories of the giants related in the Enoch literature and in Jubilees, these were already good indicators of Mani's use of earlier Jewish traditions a use confirmed by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. These consisted of many hundreds of parchment and papyrus manuscripts in Hebrew and Aramaic, with a few also in Greek, most of which had rotted away into tens of thousands of fragments. Fragments survived as some of the Enoch books in Aramaic, and also the Book of Jubilees in Hebrew. J.T. Millick has also discovered roughly six to ten extremely poorly preserved manuscripts of an Aramaic Book of Giants. Apparently the document used by Manny as the basis for his scriptural work. These manuscripts give no indication of being sectarian compositions. Their paleographic dates roughly across the first century BCE, so presumably the book was composed before this, although how long before remains open to question. The kernel of the same story appears in the Bible in Genesis 6, 1-4. But, as with the Book of the Watchers, it remains debatable whether the traditions about the Watchers and Giants are creative expansions of the Genesis passage, or independent transmissions of stories that have been summarized and truncated in Genesis. 
So, and then it talks about the Midrash of Samyaza, which Millik has published and translated in his edition of some of the Aramaic fragments of the Book of the Giants. And this work tells how at the time of the corrupt generation of the Flood, the angels Samyaza and Azazel make a bet with God that if they were to descend from heaven to earth, they would be able to resist the lure of the evil inclination. But after descending, they promptly lose the bet. They notice the beauty of mortal women and cannot restrain themselves from becoming sexually involved with them. Soon they find themselves revealing heavenly secrets to their mortal wives. Semyaza begets sons named Heia and Aheia. The angel Metatron, another name for the deified Enoch in the Hecala traditions, sends them a warning of the coming flood. Heia and Aheia each have a prognostic dream. In the first, an angel descends from heaven and scrapes an enormous stone tablet with writing on it, which was spread across the whole world until only four words remain. In the second, there is a garden full of trees and gems, but an angel descends and cuts down everything but one tree with three branches. Both dreams predict the coming of the flood and the destructions of all human beings, except Noah and his three sons. The giants are then killed in the flood, but are consoled by the fact that mortals will use their names in incantations and thus their fame will never cease. Samyaza repents and suspends himself upside down between heaven and earth. Azazel refuses to repent and becomes a demon who entices men to corrupt deeds and who bears the sins of Israel on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16, 7-10 The numerous and striking parallels with the Book of Giants are obvious. Although there is only one pair of dreams in the Midrash of Samyaza, Stuckenbrook argues that the original Book of Giants had two sets and that this may well be true also of the Manichaean version. Moving now from history of transmission to background influences, we should note that the Aramaic Book of Giants draws on ancient Near Eastern myth rather as the Manichaean version draws on Iranian. Two of the evil giants in the Aramaic version are named Gilgamesh and Hobabas. Gilgamesh is an epic figure in Sumerian and Akkadian literature, best known from the Epic of Gilgamesh, a work whose importance in ancient Mesopotamia was comparable to that of the Homeric epics in ancient Greece. According to the epic, Gilgamesh, a huge, semi-divine man, has many adventures with his friend, the wild man Enkidu. One of these is the slaying of the monster Humbaba in the cedar forest. But Enkidu dies tragically, and Gilgamesh sets out to discover the secret of immortality in order to avoid his friend's fate. He meets Utnapishtim, the Babylonian version of Noah, the only man to survive the flood. Unlike Noah, Utnapishtim was made immortal by the gods. Nevertheless, Gilgamesh fails in his quest, eventually dying and leaving only his heroic fame behind him. The giants Gilgamesh and Hobabas are reflexes of the Gilgamesh and Humbaba Huwawa of the Gilgamesh epic. Likewise, a Sogdian text of the Manichaean version refers to Atanbush, who is either another giant or Enoch, under another name. Enoch also survived the flood and was made immortal. A tan bush is clearly a reflex of Utnapishtim, and we may assume that he appeared also in some lost passage or passages in the Aramaic Book of Giants. So now, knowing the, knowing this more clearly, we can see that that's not what happened. It's just that they simply gave their name to that person. That that's the name that in their culture that they had given to that person. When really, there it was two cultures on the opposite or not not even necessarily on the opposite but on just in different places looking at the same person and calling him a different name but really and then retelling the story and you can see how it's kind of a case of the broken telephone where 
when he's speaking to one culture that has one language, that entity um, is given a name in their language, but to another culture, he's given another name. And so you see that it's the same story, and then there's just a bit of broken telephone in the way that the story is told. Just the fact that they have different names, um, we can actually correlate and see that those names really are the same name, and they're the same person over and over. Like Samyaza and, and Gilgamesh and Utnapishtim, that these are really they're the same people, just with a different name to a different culture. Thank you.